Father, we're here in your house to be blessed. We're also here to bless you. And we want that kind of relationship, Lord, where it is joy for us to come into your presence and joy for you to have us come. Thank you for the provision of Jesus that has made us your provision through Jesus that has made us your children again. And so I'm praying today, Lord, as we think about who we are as your family, that we would be humble people, that we would be like children, little children that could be joyful, trusting, and obedient. So bless us now, Lord, as we handle challenging situations. We're not up to it. But we know you're more than capable. So may we trust you, take the next step, and not lose faith. Bless us to that end now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So nice to have you all here this morning. And for those that are watching online, we're glad you can join us at Village. It is a wonderful thing to come together and to worship. And this morning, as we seek to do that, I'm appealing to you to come with humble hearts, a Berean experience. This message is probably a coalescing and a combination of probably some of the most difficult things that we could talk about. And I thought I would get out of uh, sharing it. And I've had people talk to me about concerns about me sharing it. So I want to start by saying I don't want anybody to go out of here today anything less than encouraged in the Lord, challenged, taught, and convicted by His Spirit, prayerful and beautiful, because what I'm going to talk about today is more specific about areas of reform. And you could walk out of here today finger-wagging, or you could walk out of here today discouraged. Uh, you could walk out of here today, on the other hand, prayerfully recommitted to what it is that glorifies God and blesses us as a people. So we're going to take a challenging journey, but we are Seventh-day Adventists, at least I'm assuming most of us are, and we desire truth, the truth as it is in Jesus. So I want to remind you from the beginning that we are called to a special role at the end of time. There was a man by the name of Elijah. In one word, what was his message? Just one word. What was Elijah's message? Repent. Repent. Thank you. Then when Jesus began his message and his ministry, in one word, he had the same message. Now, Jesus spoke of John the Baptist as Elijah, 
And John's message was repent. And then the scriptures tell us before the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will send us Elijah the prophet. Now, as a people, we understand that that is a corporate call to an end-time movement with an end-time message. Who, it, the message is not created by them. The message remains the same. God has made the overtures. He's reached out to a sin-sick world, and the message is not a message of condemnation because as we saw last week when we looked at the prophet and the professor, the story of Nicodemus, we saw that following John 3.16 is the message that the world is already condemned. God didn't come to condemn it. Nobody in the celestial universe believes that somehow the inhabitants of earth are righteous in any way, shape, or form. So Jesus did not come to condemn. Condemnation is the judicial conclusion for planet earth. But praise God, his very nature is redemptive. We know before the foundation of the world, his plan was to redeem. And he made us anyway. It is a miracle. It is a mystery beyond understanding. Having said that, we also know that what will separate the church in the end will be the message of Elijah, the straight testimony. The problem with so many straight testimonies is that I think they're still a little bit crooked because the love of Jesus has sometimes been left behind on the journey to confronting sin. And of course today, Christians are seen as rather hypocritical because in their own ranks, there are a variety of illegitimizing habits and practices that have cost them the moral high ground. I don't think this message will be appreciated if what you're really after is just a slightly better than normal subculture that we call Adventists and a desire to enjoy its benefits. But if you came here this morning, or if you're watching online, or if you're watching this off social media some other point in time, if you really desire to go all the way up to those pearly gates, and you really desire to take your children with you, and you really desire to fulfill the stewardship of your life, if heaven is the goal, then it's a good day to pray and wrestle. Because God's people tend to deviate from course by nature of person. And that's why there are prophets and prophetic messages to bring them back to the path of life. Now, we do have uh, an institutional crisis going on. And when I say that, I'm speaking encompassing the entire church with its K through post graduate study system of education. We can see that the trajectory is to non-existence. It is to death. We are not immune from the challenges of the Methodist or any other of the mighty movements of God that lost their moorings on the inspiration of Scripture and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their corporate journey. 
Seventh-day Adventism has not been given a get-out-of-jail-free card in regards to how God's blessing works. And we saw it in the message entitled Inexcusable Ignorance, where we couldn't believe our ears to know that there were sodomite prostitutes in the precincts of the temple in Josiah's day. We are no better than our fathers, has been the cry of various godly men. Like Elijah, just let me die. The work of reform is a prayerful work. It is a careful work. It is a graduated work, usually. And I would also go so far as to say that not all physicians are created equal. Well, we're not at the doctor's office this morning, Pastor, so what are you getting on to? Well, years ago there was a book written entitled Physician of the Soul. Unfortunately, the subject matter of that book, I believe, lost his way. But not all spiritual leadership is as equal as well. And since the day of Jeremiah was full of prophets, both true and false, it becomes imperative that we follow the direction of Paul to Timothy when he said, the purpose of the commandment is love from a sincere heart, a faith that can be seen, and a conscience that is clean. Sincerity, Ella White will write, is the essence of religion itself. The only problem with sincerity is that it can put you on a crash course with the corporate deviation, especially if you work for the denomination. Now, I love this church, and I don't have the time to go over all the credentials of my commitment, blessing, and benefit to and from Christian education. And much of what I say here this morning will relate specifically to Christian education, but its real roots is in the church. And I feel sorry at some level for every Christian educator who has a modicum of conscience who is tasked with trying to bend the curve back to the path which is narrow and upward and onward. So everything we talk about here today may, in your estimation, or may not face the category of needed reform. And I will have very little time to spend on any one of the subjects that we will look at. But I would challenge all of you to do some thinking about every one of the subjects that I bring up so that you can give an answer, so that it's scriptural and inspirational in the locus of your operation. I'll say one more thing before we go to the Bible. Whenever an institution gets into crisis or slow-rolling, slow-moving catastrophe mode, which is where a church as big as this one can eventually go, there will never be change without prayer, love, Wisdom, courage, patience, and persistence. And if any of those things are missing on the journey, woe be unto the individual 
that attempts any form of change. Usually there's a crisis associated with the change. Now, every church I've come to where dysfunction is operative, there has been a crisis. Most of you don't know what those crises are because usually they're behind the scenes between the leadership. But there was one in this church in the early days of my ministry here. And there was one in the last church in the early days of my ministry. The one in this church took me to my knees for three days without food because I knew without God's intervention, my ministry was over. And if anybody thinks that you can change in dead calm, they need to think again. And if anybody thinks human beings can affect change, they need to think again. God uses people, but He alone changes the hearts and the systems and the institutions. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6. I'm going to look at one of the judges that patriarchs and prophets actually spends a little time talking about. Judges chapter 6. There are many. They come, they go. It's a roller coaster ride for Israel. It's up, it's down. It's pretty scary at some points in time. And in Judges chapter 6, we get the story of Gideon. He is one of many sons. He's from a valiant family. All of his brothers have died fighting off the oppressors of Israel. He is the last of the sons of Joash. Judges chapter 6, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. Now, I want to hit the pause button right there because this sounds an awful lot like the book of Haggai when they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. If you have the wrong idea about God as a parent, you're not going to understand the Bible. When you're reading the Bible, you need to think about what it's saying about our Father God. And He is not... He is not a grandpa, he is a father. And he pastors and shepherds and disciples his people as a father, not as a grandfather. The two roles are very different. I'm still waiting to enjoy the, the one. I'm not as involved in the former as much, although once a parent, always a parent. You just need to be wise about how you exercise your influence. The truth of the matter is, is that God sometimes lets you have what you want, and He steps back a bit so that you could get ready to learn something. If the prodigal isn't on your mind right now, let it come to your mind. If you really don't want to be a part under my household, living under the covenant of holiness inside the precincts of my protection, you can leave. But things aren't changing here. And when Israel walks away from God, God lets them walk into the arms of insecurity. And that happens over and over again. And so this morning, if the promises of our Scripture reading are true, if there is to be prosperity wherever, wherever we turn, like the promise of the man in Psalm 1, then something has got to be wrong when it's not there. And I'll testify this morning, I don't know how it works, but I understand the principles behind it. That whenever I interact with a group of people and they decide that they'll move back to the narrow way and they'll take a few risks and they'll love enough to take some courage in relationship and leadership, it's amazing what divine partnership does to turn the ship around. 
It's a work of prayer and patience and wisdom and dependence on God, claiming those promises. But God sometimes backs away from things so that it can work the best human beings can make it work. And in the story of Gideon, it's not working very well. As a matter of fact, it's so bad that every season the Amalekites and the Moabites come and they take whatever thing that's alive, be it plant or animal. And so Gideon's reduced to threshing wheat in a wine press because he doesn't want to be seen. He does want a little bit of food for the next year. Verse 8, And the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. Actually, let's catch verse 6. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. There are moments in time when God's people are more ready to learn. It's like the prodigal. When his misery overcame his pride, he saw life through a different lens. Now it came about, verse 7, when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors. And I dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you've not obeyed me. There's a prophetic message and there's about to be a divine deliverance. And God is still in the business of divine deliverance. I opened up my wife's grandmother's Bible this week and in the front of it was this famous uh, drawing, painting of Jesus standing holding the tiller on a ship with a man and a woman looking over his shoulder And the spirit of prophecy writes, there are fearful things to come in the future for those that are associated with the work of God. Things that will stymie us, that will absolutely run over us in my loose paraphrase. And learning to depend upon God is the, it is the need of the hour. And so here we are this morning, walking with the footman, getting ready to run when we need to run. And what we need to understand is that God will coach us into readiness for every experience of our life. There is nothing to be afraid of except one thing, that I should interject my human wisdom or my human fear in place of a humble dependence upon Jesus, a wisely informed, principled, prayerful move with God. Verse 11, then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, and his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Conversation could have been over. (laughs) It's no unusual or usual encounter, I should say, 
Here is the angel of the Lord, none other than Jesus himself, coming down to encounter this discouraged man who has not lost all spiritual sensibility and yet is a part of a system that is plagued with idolatry and doubt and unfaithfulness. Jesus said enough. He could go. But he stays to converse. O Lord, verse 15, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh. And I'm the youngest in my father's household. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the the Midianite army as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I've found favor in your sight, show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I've come back to you and brought out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in the basket and the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. Then the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread, and then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that it was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still an Oprah of the Abizrites. Now, on the same night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull of seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that was beside it. Skipping to verse 27, Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. Now let me say to all parents, quoting Edwin Friedman in his book Failure of Nerve, the Jewish rabbi who legitimates in my mind the principles of leadership found in God and found in his word, a must read for every leader, Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman, deceased Jewish psychotherapist. I want you to know this morning that for all of you, and Friedman's phrase was from the parents to the presidents. In other words, it works for everybody. That if you're too afraid to go about it in the the bright light of day, start thinking about how to achieve success under the cloak of less visible circumstances. The truth of the matter is, if you're at the front of a group of people and you know the trajectory is bad, the direction is wrong, go ahead and take good comfort that when God sends a message, brings it himself, sends a messenger, calls for change. He's okay calling fearful people valiant as long as they will obey in the end. And if you're not afraid, naturally, there's probably a little something not normal about you, and you may not be the best person for the task. I tried to get out of this message, and I had a union, former union educator, come by the church this week And I told him what I was going to preach about. He said he had been listening to the messages online. 
And I gave him an opportunity to point me in a different direction, and he did exactly the opposite. And then he got a hold of a friend, and he did the exact opposite. And then on one day this week, I'm cleaning up the piles on my table in my office, and I come across a document from the deceased Dr. K, who was much esteemed by our village community. And wouldn't you know, it's a document that's exactly on the subject matter I'm dealing with. It's not that I asked for a sign, and yet the Lord Himself sends encouragement when you're on a difficult journey. And God calls for men, women, who may be feeling afraid, but aren't too afraid to do what He says in the end. And that's what this is about this morning. It's about people who love and care enough, both transcendent and in a horizontal plane, the people in whom whom they take their definition and their security. When we look at the story of Gideon, Patriarchs and Prophets makes it very clear that before he was to declare war, on the Midianites, he was to declare war on idolatry. Sober, succinct line. Now, I've got about 15 minutes to do what I'm about to do, and I'm going to tell you, I've never met a person who's ever had an idol. Never. I've walked up and down the hotels of India, and there's the Buddha or whatever it is, you know, with the incense. I've, I've, gone, I've driven by the temples. I've seen the monkey god, you know, towering as tall as our Statue of Liberty on the plains of India. But in America, I've never met anybody who has any problem with idols. And when I go to talking to anyone about it, it's enthusiastic rebuttal and denial that they exist. So maybe I'm talking to a whole group of people today who feel exactly the same way. The only problem is that while they're not carved with our hands, they're enshrined in our hearts and they're defended with our good minds. And I'm about to address them. And I won't get them all. And I'm not looking to overwhelm. I'm going to start by saying this. The Bible says, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I spoke as a child. I behaved as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. I want you to understand that I believe if we were to place Adventism in this 21st century on a spectrum of development, we'd have to call it adolescent and maybe regressive. We throw a temper tantrum and we run somewhere else when mommy or daddy doesn't give us what we want. And it's done by some of the most distinguished and well-educated people who have never really grown up spiritually, relationally, maturationally. You need to understand if you're a leader listening to me here this morning from the parents to the presidents that sometimes it takes a while for things to work out. But the absence of following Jesus, the absence of trusting Jesus, is the certainty of feebleness for the home, the school, and the church. The first idol I'm going to take on is the family itself, child-centered parenting and self-centered homes. 
our own children become our idols when they get in the way of what God wants us to do that affects them, the culture we're to create for them, or they become an excuse for us living out our own adolescent appetites. Our families can be the first idol. And I want to tell you, I feel sorry for some of these professors in our colleges, of which for a while I was an adjunct, parents calling them up, arguing that their kids should get a better grade. They're so used to doing well, hither and yon, but they come to, let's say, our own Andrews University, where we believe in academic excellence. Praise the Lord. And somehow the parent has never let the child face the realities of life and is still acting as their defender. And is worse than that, living out their own middle-aged experience through an adultish young person. This is a tragedy. Our kids are very resilient, and they're not even our kids. They're on loan. They're a gift from God. We are stewarding their lives. And it is absolutely imperative that we don't follow the mandates of the world. They are to be loved, and it's to be a beautiful, affectionate love. But it's to be a principled, objective love as well. And our children are not to be the center of our lives, but we are to show the children that God is the center of our life. So if we raise a prodigal and we won't change, even to keep the relationship, which is a phrase that I've come to despise because it means pretzelizing yourself in the name of connection when sometimes you've got to do like God did and let the Midianites have them for a while. Child-centered parenting, self-centered homes. I'm amazed sometimes at what people as old as my parents do for their adult children that is dysfunctional and wrong. The idea that somebody could come live in your home in a sinful relationship and you're 60 or 70 years old just befuddles me beyond comprehension. But it's a lifelong process and we get very little of what I'll call practical parenting theology because we're not looking for it in the Word. Parents have children on loan and God's going to ask when He comes to get them, where are they? Because their real father is up above and the journey on earth was one that He used to teach the parents while He was raising the children. Now let's go a little more to the other schools. I want to talk about the absence of gospel identity. We spent a week here. You love, you matter, you belong. I don't know if it's the compromise of government money. I don't know if it's confusion in the social sciences. But the refusal of a prominent place for a spiritual identity for our young people and a proper confrontation with the soul-destroying, sin-destroying, relationship-destroying diseases of this age is a blight. It is a cancer. And by the way, I don't use the word cancer casually. I'm married to a wonderful woman who's had it two times. It is a worrisome thing. And it is overcomable with change and divine intervention. 
The absence of a gospel identity, the fact that someone like Coming Out Ministries cannot be on our campuses for some strange reason is beyond me. And they barely made it on this summer to a campus this spring, to a campus to the south of us here. But it was only because somebody made a poor decision about letting somebody else onto the campus that wasn't going to play well in the PR circles. And then somebody from Coming Out Ministries is invited to speak. This is a cancer on Christian education. The second thing, third thing that's a cancer on our Christian education is critical race theory. The assumption that the human heart is only dark and that power is always the goal of the human being. The idea that we would embrace social Darwinism, in other words, pulling God out of the perspective of the development of harmony between the races is absolutely an abomination to every gospel community. And if we can't come together and pray so that we could actually be enlightened as to how neglect and disfavor and abuse has happened in the past, wouldn't it behoove to the glory of God and the honor of the one that rules heaven to show how Christians actually have for millennia and can into the future create true harmony? But of course, Christians are busy amusing and entertaining themselves. But the problem with social Darwinism is that there is no place for God in the framework. But the idea that you can never calibrate your conscience properly or your consciousness properly through your conscience is an absolute non-starter. The idea that I can never be aware enough to be aware enough of what I'm not aware enough is a real problem logically. As a matter of fact, it's an ontological, theological, and illogical starting point. But it appears that Christians are more than willing to embrace this kind of dialogue and actually partner with this kind of supposed deliverance. Unconscious bias, yes, but the idea that it cannot be explored, prayed over, and confronted is completely preposterous to all premises of Christianity and the presence of God. The 1619 Project suggests that America was bad from the beginning, but all you have to do is read the Bible just a little bit, Revelation, and it says that the nation starts out as a lamb and ends as a dragon. It doesn't say it starts out as a dragon and ends as a lamb. And when I look at the experience of Jesus, I realize that he was dealing with some pretty bigoted people. He said to a Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, it's not right to take the food on the table and give it to the dogs. He was trying to change their minds. He had to deal with disciples who said of the Samaritans, Luke 9, would you like for us to call fire down from heaven? And he says, you don't know yourself. You don't understand your spirit. The new church had to deal with the, the Hellenistic women, the Greek women, who were supposedly not getting their daily fare. Spirit of Prophecy makes it clear it was a supposed, not even real problem, but it was dealt with as if it were a real problem. And how about in the book of Galatians when Peter goes back to Judaizing and Paul confronts him to his face in Galatians chapter 2? And then how about Acts chapter 21 when Peter, when Paul comes back to Jerusalem and I'm just going to read it to you because I've got to keep moving here. They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you come. And so what do we tell you? 
Do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. And they go and they perform a Nazarite vow. Well, you know what the problem is? Is that the, the prejudice and the discrimination inside the Jewish church, even some men upon whom the Holy Spirit, and certainly women, who probably weren't part of the decision making, but they were part of the Spirit falling, they're, they've returned to the roots of their bigotry, and they're suggesting that Paul do something that's going to potentially rob the early church of his presence, and it's based on envy, jealousy, and bigotry. Of course, Paul was teaching people not to be circumcised. Strange conundrum. We need you to act now like you haven't been before, so everything will be okay. Well, everything wasn't okay, was it? Let's move to a different topic, the institutionalization of sport. It's no longer highly controversial because it's ipso facto. It is. The problem is, is that I have a long education in this that needs not the, the, the scads of papers that I have sitting on my desk in my office right now from other godly people who understand that the world's gods are not to be our gods. And this may be the most objectionable to the men listening to me here this morning, but I still remember the head deacon who wouldn't come to board meetings on Monday night because he had to see his Monday night football. I still remember the family beginning to skip adventures because their kids were in a soccer league or a softball league. I still remember the unholy emotion that sometimes even I displayed on basketball courts. I remember the 5 a.m. devotion of my own children to get up and be at the varsity sports program. And I remember the unholy emotion of all those who told us how wonderful the program was when it was undone at Indiana Academy. And our principal, who had the courage to undo it, had some of the worst things said to him and gravel put in his gas tank, and I was getting a real education. And when our institutions of higher learning institute these things, it's like they can go around all of the institutions underneath them and say, this is good, you ought to do it too. And so all the pastoral ministry and consecrated educational ministry is run over. There is some competition in life, and there's nothing wrong with games, but when we institutionalize it to the point of the rest, like the rest of the worldly institutions, we have crossed a line from innocent joy in play to bowing down to the gods of these age, sometimes in the name of recruiting. And this is particularly problematic because now we have the corruption in the home, all the hours spent wasted while grown adult men act like boys when the world is going to hell in a handbag and now we have the institutions lining up with the homes and we have a real serious problem on our hands. No wonder we have problems. When I think about Jesus baptizing more than John did, Jesus leaves that area. When I think about Jesus refusing to be king, you know, if Jesus wanted to play the game of who could win, he could do it pretty easy. Let's go on to another topic, generational, sociological generational theory. I can remember once getting on an airplane in Albuquerque. I was a very young man. I had been invited to share at ASI. I was there with my wife and my little two-year-old boy. I can still remember getting on the airplane, talking to one of the leaders of ASI. And somehow it came up that in my church, the older people appreciated me. And it was almost like that was offensive. And the first question back out beyond that was, well, what about the young people? Well, I want to tell you something. I understand that generations are shaped by crisis and economics and politics, but I also believe as 
some of the articles I looked at as well, that this kind of disambiguation of the data leaves people like us moving with the masses unless we say, you do need to disambiguate the data. You need to go back and look at it because there are subcultures inside of cultures. And Seventh-day Adventists should have a subculture that defies all the general march and movement of the masses. And we're not to be relating to our kids like they have to have this and they have to have that because they're part of this generation or that generation. And the generational studies themselves are controversial, but if you don't study into it, you don't know that. This idea that somehow our kids won't respond to the age-old promptings of the Holy Spirit and the beauties of relationship. When Joel Ashley sat up here a few weekends ago for a mission segment on the mentorship program, I can't tell you how gratified I was to hear the mentoree as, he, as the story was related, telling his father, let's stop by and see the Clarks and see if they're doing okay. It wasn't a class assignment. They were just on their way to Niles, Michigan, and that got them within about a half a mile of the Clarks' house. The aged Eli and the youthful Samuel, says the prophet, this is as it should be. We do not need to take our cues from generational sociological theory. Those theories have something to share, but they are not the, de the definitive factor on the subculture of holiness that we are to create in our movement. When I think about these different things, I'm left with the absolute certainty that God himself is going to have to intervene. But there ought to be a time of prayer for that intervention. It is time. It is now. You see, friends, we're living in an age in which very soon, calamity after calamity is going to follow upon this earth. We ought to take heed to the fact, as your bulletin says, that Satan is creating an army. The future will be determined by the youth of today. Satan is making earnest, persevering efforts to corrupt the mind and debase the character of every young person. And shall we who have more experience stand as mere spectators and see him accomplish his purpose without hindrance? Let us stand at our post as Minutemen to work for these youth and through the help of God hold them back from the pit of destruction. In the parable, while men slept, the enemy sowed tares, and while you, my brothers and sisters, are unconscious of his work, He's gathering an army of youth under his banner, and he exults, for through them he carries on his warfare against God. One more paragraph. Teachers in our schools have a heavy responsibility to bear. They must be in words and character what they wish their students to be, men and women that fear God and work righteousness. If they're acquainted with the way themselves, they can train the youth to walk in it. They will not only educate them in the sciences, but train them to have moral independence to work for Jesus and take up the burdens in his cause. Now listen, when an institution dies, it loses its inspiration. When an institution dies, it loses the natural placement for the adventure and the challenge of the youth. And ever there was a day, this is the day. It is time to reconstitute the mission of this church. I'm all for indigenous and nationalized missionaries. But it is time for every one of our young people to be challenged like the Mormon youth are, to go give a year of their life where transformation, not only impact, but transformation of person will take place. 
It is time for a greater flow of means. I had Gary Thurber, president of the Mid-American Union, share this idea with me years before. It's not my idea, but it's time for it to happen. It doesn't happen on receding budgets and diminishing finances. It is time for our elementary schools, our high schools, and our colleges to remember they exist for a purpose, to prepare our children for a life of service here, a joyful life of service, and the higher joy of a higher service in the world to come. But for that to happen, we're going to have to go about things a bit differently. Jesus himself was abandoned by all of his supposed friends and crucified by his enemies. But he went all the way to the cross knowing that losing was winning. And this morning, friends, we may have to lose some of our stuff. We may have to lose some of our pleasures. We may have to lose some of our friends. We may have to lose some of our jobs. But we must never lose the presence of Jesus who said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. With my eye upon you, I will counsel you. If you have to lose something to be true to Jesus, you didn't need it And this morning, my reluctance will be your reluctance. And my prompter will be your prompter. May God help each one of us. Now, I'd like to invite our musicians out. We're going to do something a little different. I'm going to crowd into the Sabbath school a little bit. But we're going to sing two songs. An old one, which the younger people may not know. And one that probably everybody will know. Let's stand up. And we're going to enjoy a song that calls us back to the primacy of the church. The church. And it is the church that establishes schools. And it is the church that's to hold the schools accountable. It is the church that's to encourage the schools. And it is the church that is to create mission opportunity. So this morning, we're going to take all the minutes it takes to sing the song. And by God's grace, we're going to cement in our heart while we're singing the fact that soldiery requires discipline, order, authority, and Jesus himself is the captain. Let's sing.